Thank you for joining the first episode of Chicago's Radical Kinship Podcast. The concept of this podcast is to spotlight the social justice and kinship initiatives of Old St. Pat's Church and engage the parish in a dialogue with community members from around the city so we can listen to the needs of those on the margins and take meaningful action together. Initially, we wanted to focus on the health crisis made worse due to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, with the events surrounding George Floyd's death in Minnesota and the protests taking place in our city and across the nation, we thought it necessary to focus our first episode on some of the issues faced by African Americans and the need for reform. Our first guest is Cliff Nellis, the founder and executive director of Lawndale Christian Legal Clinic and North Lawndale resident for over 11 years. Cliff is also a local hero of mine, and I'm very excited to have him as our first guest of the podcast, an honor he no doubt will be adding to his resume right after the show. Welcome, Cliff, to Chicago's Radical Kinship Podcast. Well, thank you, Kevin, for having me. Um, hi, everybody else. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a little bit of a different format than I think uh, conversations we're used to, but it's good, I think, to open up and uh, introduce you to the parish at large for the phone to understand more of what you do. I know uh, we partnered back, I think last fall was it, We the church hosted a mock trial for couple of the young adults, young persons in your group, and it was a very success. We had an actual judge and real-life court reporter there taking what everybody said, and it was the only chance I ever got to serve on a jury. So we found the yeah. defendant not guilty, so that was a fun experience. So um, Seven years in a row now. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> You're doing something right, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so if you can, just, if you could try us a little bit about what, you, what your work is, what the LCLC focuses on. Sure. So we provide a very unique form of criminal defense representation for young people 24 years and old, uh, old and younger. I call it a unique form because we are holistic and community-based. Uh, holistic means that every young person that we represent is matched with both a lawyer, a case manager, an outreach worker, and then wraparound supports from a network of service providers that we've been cultivating a collaboration here within North Lawndale called the North Lawndale Community Restorative Justice Hub. And so we're meeting the legal and social needs of young people in two critically developmental phases of life, of course, minors, uh, 17 and under, um, and then emerging adults, 18 to 24. And we provide this holistic um, representation uh, during the entire process of the criminal justice system from the point of arrest all the way through the completion of trial, all the way through the completion of any sentencing of probation, parole, or probation, incarceration, and then parole. Um, our goal is to get them through and out of the system for good. Our bigger picture goal, though, is really to transform a, a really broken, racially disparate uh, system that uh, only hurts our young African-American, younger, boy, but well, really everybody, but the young people in particular, 24 and under, um, we're trying to create a system where it's community-based, culturally competent, community competent, led by, with, and for people from North Lawndale who are sort of taking the kids back, if you will, from the clutches of a criminal justice system that knows only really three things, policing, and, and obviously in today's climate, we know that that policing isn't good. Uh, it's largely um, riddled with excessive force and constitutional rights being violated on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so policing, prosecuting, um, mostly not consistent with how people of different colors and backgrounds are being prosecuted, meaning they're getting uh, higher, higher charges and more rigorous prosecution than, of course, incarceration. So policing, prosecution, and incarceration being the three arms. And, of course, our young black people in Chicago 
are going to jail at far the greater rates um, than any other people do. So our, so the, what we do on the day to day is mindful of what happens in the whole, and what happens in the whole is a system that is really hurting predominantly black and brown communities, and we want to see a system that is um, more focused on public health, youth development, um, best practices in restorative justice, violence prevention, and really supporting young people to become the leaders we know that they can with the right resources and supports in place. Oh, it's all fantastic. And uh, one of the things you mentioned as we delve into this, uh, you mentioned up to age 24, and like the way the criminal justice system is now for, for youth, it's to 18. So why, why 24? Sure, good question. So there's a lot of research uh, in, uh, well, first of all, neurobiology, that our frontal lobe, our brain, is not fully developed until 25. That's why our insurance premiums go down. It's why often you can't rent a car. Uh, it's why we all know from personal experience, we hopefully start doing less stupid things <laughs> at 25 and older. I can speak from personal experience. I did. Yeah, well, yourself, I can speak yeah. from personal experience that I didn't when I was younger. I don't know if I'm doing much better, but I hope we um, So you've got neurobiology and basically brain science, but then you've got developmental psychology too and sociology, all of which have, have I mean, numerous stuff studies have been done to show that these are very distinct phases of life, very distinct developmental phases of life. So of course, 17 and under, everybody kind of recognizes are that already, adolescent, you know, development, whatever you want to call it. Um, but for emerging adults, which is a little more, maybe not uh, commonly understood, you have, um, I'm sorry, my, my dog just decided to come say hi to me. Hopefully you didn't see the camera, but it's really annoying me. I shoot her. <laughs> so um, I shoot her just to clear everything. Um, anyway, so uh, the 18 to 24-year-old is within the criminal justice system, I think, is, is kind of late to the game, but is starting to recognize that this is a unique developmental phase of life. Of course, it's the first time you're usually, first time you're an adult, right? And now you're looking for work and you're, so, I mean, just having a setback of a felony record or a jail sentence um, at that young age can literally have an economic life sentence attached to it because of the way our system currently works. So um, I hope I answered your question, but yes, there's, there's plenty of scientific research and I like to throw in a little common sense too that says 18 to 24 year olds is a unique developmental phase of life, different from 17 and under. And then you'd really go into early childhood too, early childhood, adolescence, and then emerging adults. Yeah, I've always heard yeah. that described as the, uh, the rock star mentality of like during that age, maybe more creative then, but you lack the wisdom you have kind of the, the energy, uh, yeah. kind of the, but you like the wisdom, like the foresight to understand the decisions that you're, you're making and the long-term impact that they're going to have. But with yeah, I don't know if you know this, but there's actually a study that actually kind of supports exactly what you said. Intellectually, the, the, they, you actually do start to develop intellectually at 18, but social emotional learning doesn't really peak until 25. And so it's, it's, you can have these very, you know, and, and of course, like you said, you're energetic and whatnot, but you can have these great ideas, but it's, it's oftentimes not understand. They're much more influenced by their environment and the context in which they operate. 18 to 24 year olds are much more susceptible. And you talk about like the kind of the emotional and mental impact that that has, but now going back to when you're talking about like the holistic approach that you have and understanding that the clientele um, that you, you see at the LCLC is, is going to, there's going to be traditional, there's going to be what, more scars and, and like more, uh, I'm trying to think the right word to look for, but like um, a, a different upbringing than I think maybe most of our listeners might be used to or there's more trauma involved 
in that process. And kind of what's maybe traditionally, unfortunately, associated with like North Lawndale residents is that how how's that how's that affected uh, over time? Especially as you kind of grow up the adolescent phase and then you get into that adult phase. That all that under twenty four. Yeah. I mean, so trauma is, it's well documented. Trauma also does slow down brain development. Um, it can be reversed. It can be restored. There are treatments for it. Um, our young people in North Lawndale, I mean, I think maybe you're kind of referring to what a lot of people call social determinants of health, because it's really much more than just education and, and, and medical care, employment, poverty, you know, all the different things that, that um, we see are, are lacking, if you will, in, in the in the west side, south side of Chicago, which I think COVID has really exposed. I mean, it's been, nothing's changed. It's just exposed it. When you have 70% of the deaths in our area are African-American, you, you're exposing the reality that um, our community has always been suffering more. Our community has always been suffering more from uh, lack of medical care, lack of employment, lack of resources to, I mean, if you're not employed, if you don't have the resources, some of it's trust. You know, I mean, there's, there's just a lot of, a lot of things that are, that are contributing to um, the realities that are now being exposed through this, through COVID. Now, how as a resident and as a community member with the start of the pandemic, how have you seen the community change and it's just handling uh, this crisis initially? Well, you know, I'll tell you one of the things that was like one of the most heartbreaking things um, right before the shelter in place was put in order, um, a number of the staff uh, uh, at the legal center and most of our staff, I think it's around 70% are from North Lawndale, born and raised, lived here their whole life. And, and it, so many of them said to me, oh, well, you know, we're already quarantined. Like this isn't going to affect us. And there was a real logic to it that I, I even thought like, man, okay, that might actually be the one time where be socially excluded from the rest of everyday life might actually be in our favor, which of course then it was very heartbreaking to find that, of course, that's not the case. And it's, you know, although in many ways, I think what they're expressing through saying we're already quarantined is, is we're already not a part of the larger world, right? Like this, there's, there's, we are, we are unto ourselves here. And that's, and that's real on a lot of, le- I mean, that's, that's not a perception, that's reality. Um, fortunately, of course, the way that viruses are, you know, it's like one person only has to get it and then it can go everywhere within the community. So how has the community changed? Um, you know, I think, I think there was, um, I, you know, I wouldn't say it's changed a lot. I mean, honestly, it's just exposed a lot. Nothing's changed in the raw you know, what's here, what's happening, who's here. I've, there's a change, of course, there's been a lot more impacted here. I mean, there are, you know, one of my staff members' mother passed away. I mean, so, I mean, obviously that's a change. I don't, I don't mean to belittle that change at all. Um, so, I mean, you know, other than the, the, we're bearing the brunt of this and the hardship of unemployment and, um, and death is being experienced here greater than elsewhere. I don't think there's a lot of change. I mean, contrary to some of the narratives I've heard, I, I mean, I, I think it's important to dispel this. Uh, you know, people are social distancing. You know, uh, it, the 70% death rate isn't because, you know, they're ignoring public health um, recommendations. It's 
but frankly offensive and ridiculous. Um, you know, that's not the case. I mean, it, the, the reason is because a lot of people here have secondary health issues. A lot of people already had secondary diabetes or obesity or, or just, you know, and that's all of the health disparities that existed pre-COVID were just exposed because we were already set behind with secondary, what we are now calling, I guess, secondary health problems that are, you know, that are making you at higher risk when you, when you contract COVID. So I don't know, I don't know, beyond that, I mean, I will say I do think that there's been a lot of positive silver linings that have come out. I do feel like there's been a little more unity, a little more like we're coming together. Everybody's working together to get food around, you know, or, um, you know, I mean, it's moments like these personally and I think community-wide, you start to reassess your priorities, your values, you know, you start to recognize, hey, I need to reach out to mom and dad or my uncle or a cousin or your friends a little bit more. I know personally I have been and you slow down. So I would, I would say there's been a little bit more love in the air, you know, in some ways because of that. Um, but there's been a lot of hardship. There's definitely been a lot of hardship. Uh, unemployment, when you don't, when you, when you don't have a salary job and you're hourly or you don't have a job, something like this, you know, is devastating. There's, there's not the social network or this, or the, um, not really the, social, the safety nets aren't in place. And so this, you know, small setback can be huge setbacks for a lot of our people in North Lawndale. This isn't a small setback even, right? I mean, this is a pandemic where we've been quarantined, shelter in place. And so economically people are hurting, but they were hurting beforehand, but they're hurting now. I'm not belittling that. I'm just saying like, this wasn't really caused by COVID. COVID's exposing what's already here. It, uh, one of the things we've heard too is kind of the gig jobs, the, the Ubers, the Lyft drivers, the um, Instacart shoppers, uh, like all those jobs have now, well, maybe not Instacart so much, but those other jobs have just are disappeared now because people aren't moving. So whereas they had a lower barrier of entry for employment, but now those opportunities are just evaporating. And it's, yeah. it's, well, it's, yeah. And some of our kids were cooks at restaurants, you know, restaurants closed. Right. So, I mean, like, yeah, there's a lot of people have lost work. Right. And well, especially with the uncertainty of when things are going to be fully able to reopen, that's, that's going to probably exacerbate those already strained resources that seem to take place. Did you notice, or have you seen help, has it mainly been helping each other from the inside of the community, or have you also been additional increases help from the outside, either from the city resources or just other uh, city involvement? Yeah, there's actually been, I would say, maybe two ways of that. So. Um, first wave was a lot of COVID response funds, right? A lot of um, foundations like um, Chicago Community Trust, United uh, United Way, or Metropolitan. Um, some foundation, Stains Family, number of foundations, and and individuals um, wanted to know, hey, how can I help? And so, the Legal Center, like many other nonprofits in the area, started a COVID response fund. Um, we used that that first wave of funding. We actually used it for helping our young people be able to stay home. And one of the things that, you know, sheltering in place is a lot harder if you live in a two bedroom overcrowded apartment, you don't have internet, you don't have food, of course, you're worried about rent. But even if you have food and rent, if you don't have internet, you don't have a phone, right? I mean, like how many, I know for me, when I have my kids and I'm working from home, they got devices, you know what I mean? They don't have gaming systems, they don't have laptops and they don't have internet, then you, you get bored real quick, right? 
So, um, so we made sure that our kids could still do e-learning. Uh, so part of it was raising money to get internet access at home. They didn't have it. It was getting some just recreational, like gaming systems, right? You know, Hulu cards and Netflix cards and, um, and you know, the, I'm not a gamer guy, but like, you know, Nintendo, whatever the heck, I'm sure Xbox or something, I really don't know. Right. Anyway, right. you know, and then uh, engaged and active. Yeah, and engaged and active, but then also educational too. You know, I mean, it's 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 all of the above. And, and phones, phones, so you can say hi and stay inside. So it was like, what do we? What do you need to stay inside? You need food. Sometimes you need wage assistance. Sometimes you need rent assistance. Rent assistance. And then of course, you know, internet access is a big one now. Now speaking about the, uh, well, turning to the criminal justice aspect of it and the criminal courts. I know. Um, there's been a hesitation, there's been a delay. One of the rumors I've, I've been hearing is there's not there's possibly not be any jury trials until November, if any, this year, which is wow, yeah, at least on the civil side. Now, uh, okay, now when it gets like the criminal aspect, what, what have you seen? Has there been a slowdown in the way the, the court's yeah. proceeding? Because this is you know, a civil case is, is different because that, that just deals with maybe an injury right. or a breach of contract. So, like, those things can wait a little bit longer. They, yeah, it's time important, but when you're dealing with people who are incarcerated or who are. Uh, facing some sort of you know, sentencing of, of some sort, what impact has COVID had? Uh, in that yeah, way? well, I mean, the, the Speedy Trial Act for the criminal side was suspended. I mean, they, 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 um, we have not had jury trials since the court's been closed. Now, you can't not have bond hearings, right? I mean, there's basic constitutional rights. So the courts were, quote, unquote, closed, um, but bonds, bond court was open. Essential motions were open. Most of that came around, um, and I was very proud of our team. Before the order actually went in place, our lawyers worked around the clock to research what a pandemic is like in jail. And you can imagine it's worse than a cruise and chip, and it's worse than nursery homes, it's nursing homes. It's, it's not the worst place you can be for a lot of obvious reasons. Um, but they put together a very compelling motion saying, hey, you know, bond shouldn't be a death sentence, right? This is their presumed innocent pending trial. And we want to get our kids home. They got everybody but one home, um, which I thought was very, very impressive. Um, but su subsequently, it was bond hearings. And then also, like, we had some hard times. We really wanted to, one of the one person who was in custody, we felt we should be able to visit this person via Zoom because there was the outbreak in Cook County and the sheriff's office would not work with us. Um, my lawyer has still been going into the jail to visit this young man, which I think is utterly ridiculous because most of the hearings now are being done Zoom. It took, I think it was maybe three weeks ago. I, time is a little bit off during these times. It's hard to remember what yesterday was. Time is irrelevant. <laughs> it is so, it's like twilight zone. Um, but they did shift to Zoom meetings. So they have Zoom bond court hearings and, and, um, and I know our lawyers. And you know, I'm not practicing anymore. So... I'm getting these reports now secondhand, um, but that's, I think, the, mostly the lay of the land. And now we're, we are moving into this new phase where we are going to be reopening. Um, and whether there's going to be, I can't imagine there's not going to be three trials. I think, in the, I think, as you noted, the criminal um, courts is a different world where, you know, your liberty, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake. Um, immediate risk and be taken away. Right, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope that we don't cut any corners. It's not like our system's doing great on on convicting the right people and sentencing them in fairness. So I don't think this would help any. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think other than that, though, the, you know, there, some of this is also accelerated things that should have happened 20 years ago. <laughs> like e-filing, 
you know, I mean, I, when I clerked for a federal judge in, in, in 2000, it was 20 years ago, and we were e-filing then. And this Circuit Court of Cook County is still not e-filing. Still literally, you know, triplicate of hard copy. It's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think, yeah, to explain for our listeners who, who aren't aware, um, it, when you file like a motion, even on, on the civil side or the criminal side, you just can't type up a document in Word, turn it into a PDF, and then upload it to some sort of website or you know, right. somebody. You have, to, you still have to print it out, mail it. Uh, before, you used to have to go to the, the, the actual physical courthouse and the clerk, somebody else would take it, put a stamp on the exact time and date yep. that you gave it to them so that there was a record of it. And then when you would have to handwrite orders, which are effectively law in, in that case, you would have to have three sheets of paper with, with carbon copies. Carbon. <laughs> carbon paper in between. And you had to write as hard, as neatly as you could to read through all three. That was still, that was, that's still before the pandemic in March, I was still filling yeah. out orders that way. It's 2020 technology. Yeah. <laughs> this is just such a disconnect from where I think yeah. how most companies and businesses run today. And, and you think, no, this is, you make sure you have yeah. a pen with you. If not, then the other guy can't read, can't read your order. And that, that causes a bunch of confusion. But, yeah. The only, the only technological upgrade is no more feather pens and candles. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we don't have to wear wigs anymore. That, that's, yeah, a, and that's an upgrade. Yeah. Uh, so when you talk about the holistic approaches that you have, that you also focus on. So it's, more than just like a public defender job, let's say, where somebody can afford an attorney is an appointed one who's just going to see you through the time from your arrest or when you're charged all the way to your sentencing, let's say. So mm-hmm. that, that, those, that attorney-client relationship kind of goes away at that point to some right. degree, the representation. So what more does LCLC do outside of just that, that legal aspect? Yeah, so our holistic team works together. Uh, they do form an attorney-client privilege team, but our case managers and outreach workers in particular are doing social assessments while our attorneys are doing the legal assessments. Now, the truth is, is in criminal court, which I think is, again, a little bit of a difference between the civil and criminal side of, of law, your social realities, your story, who you are as a person, which is why the criminal court system is so disparate when it comes to race. Um, that social element of who you are, what's your story, where are you from, what's your potential, what do you have in place? What resources? What's your family? All those things actually bear to your legal representation. The line between legal and social is a very blurred line, which is why I think our, the way we represent our young people is very effective because our lawyers have all the clinical social assessments on hand that our case managers and outreach workers are doing, coupled with then community partners who provide mental health, substance abuse treatment, you know, mentoring, uh, housing, workforce development, et cetera. And, and so having all of that as a package helps at bond court, right? When you talk about flight risk and um, helps in sentencing, what, you know, what's a good way of resolving this if you're found guilty or you plead guilty. It also ha- helps a lot in negotiations. What most people don't realize is 90, I think it's 96 or 7% of all cases across the country settle. So, you know, mitigation packages, which we call it, it's, it's basically all of the documentation that ju- that sort of substantiates this person's life story, where they're born, who their parents are, what school they're at, what jobs they've had, where they're from, what opportunities they have, what's, what's, what challenges they face in life and what services exist. All of that is a mitigation package. We're very effective in, in putting those together, as you can imagine, because we have one, we're community-based, right? And there's a lot I could say about community-based, but we're very accessible. You know, I mean, we, we're in the neighborhood 
We see our kids, you know, not just at the office and in court, but like when I'm outside mowing my lawn, sometimes I think they wish they hadn't seen me, especially when my shirt was off and my socks were pulled off. <laughs> still get still get ribbed for that one. <laughs> but um, to be humble. And, uh, yeah, it's like, what's up? You know, hey, this is me on Saturday. <laughs> There's there is, um, but it's not just that too. It's also particularly for somebody who's a white guy that grew up in Lake Zurich, and um, and all of our staff that's not from North Lawndale to it, the biggest one of the biggest mistakes I believe that white America makes um, is in general, we tend to uh, assume that our lived experience of our country is the same as everybody else, e even though it's like demonstrably false and, and absolutely ridiculous. We tend to think that everybody has an equal shot or, you know, this is the land of the opportunity and, and fairness exists and all this stuff. And so it, living in the neighborhood for me has been, immensely um, important because I've gotten to see over 11 years that I'm learning. I learn, I am still am learning more than I teach. I, I, it didn't take long for me to really figure out that like the, the things that the kids were serving are navigating are not anything I've ever had to navigate my entire life. Like quite literally, you know, hunger, rent, um, losing a family member to, to violence, um, losing a family member to incarceration, uh, having surrounded, not just, you know, like, not just a, somebody lost their job, surrounded by people who've lost their jobs or have no, have no jobs. Um, it, it, it's it, living in a community that has, um, is, is depressed in so many areas of what most people call social determinants of health for me as a white person who's grown up only knowing privilege and affluence and like most everything handed to me on a silver platter. I mean, frankly, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I don't work and or nothing like that, but it, it's like, it's like working with a tool belt and working without tools. It's just not even close, you know? And, um, and so, you know, it's, it's that I think has been important because you, you, you pretty quickly shift from a, you know, s servant servee type kind of like, oh, we're helping you to, no, we really need to stand together and we need to fight for justice and equity. And we need to balance the, the scales here because the scales are really out of whack. You touched on a really good point now, especially with the events uh, regarding George Floyd and the, the protests that have gone on nationwide and here in Chicago. Um, I think it's really drawn a lot of people's attention to those issues and it's, it's and what systemic racism is and the effects of white privilege and really kind of being aware to the difference that actually exists. You know, we, we hear about crime in certain parts of the area and part of us maybe just think, well, that's, that's normal or that's accepted. Like that, that's what happens in those bad areas. They're not really understanding or questioning why those areas have become that way. And like you kind of said a little bit earlier, there's that mindset of, well, if you just work hard enough, you'll have the same advantages that I've worked hard and, you, and like you have to do the same thing too. And you can run that. But really you're, you're at such a disadvantage already just to kind of get to that normal. Uh, so now as we as a community and we as a nation are starting to kind of grapple more with this concept and ideas and understand it, what, what things have you learned or what, what more would you like to expand on um, to kind of help direct people's attention and their awareness? 
Yeah, well, first of all, I'm, I'm appreciative that you framed the question you did way the way you did. Because I will say one thing that I have been very adamant about with all of my white friends, really anybody, but this tends to be most of my white friends, is I don't really care to debate the relative value of, of protesting or rioting. I, I, don't, I just don't even care what your opinions really are. What I care about is how do we make sure that George Floyd doesn't happen again? And I don't want to get distracted with you know, some, what I would say, quite frankly, is sort of moral fluff of like, oh, let me weigh in on how we should respond between like protests and rioting as opposed to owning the fact that systemic and institutional racism has existed for centuries and we have to stop it. I think the thing that I've, I've, and I hate to, I, you know, like I temper my optimism with the last 11 years of not really seeing what needs to happen, happen, you know, Trayvon Martin, I think that was 2012. Everybody started talking and then, you know, kind of went back. Hey, Mike Brown, John Crawford, Tamir Wright, you name it, right? And now we've got Amy Cooper, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Ahmaud Arbery, right? And it had a string, I think, it had, during this COVID time, during exposing the realities uh, that COVID is exposed, I think that sort of came to a head. And, and, and I'm, I'm somewhat hopeful I, time will tell that I have seen far more white people than ever say, I will speak out and I will also um, reach out, like reach out to your African-American brothers and sisters because they're, they aren't doing that well right now. This is hard. This is real hard. I think it's hard for us. It's kind of a joke. Really. It really is, you know? And so, um, you know, recognizing that that pain and that trauma is exponentially harder for an African-American to watch these videos to be, they've already dealing with COVID and, and then to watch these videos and, and, and then, and then the debate afterwards, you know, it's like, it just misses the point. So I, I have seen, I have, I, I will say I have personally witnessed from family and friends from Lake Zurich where I grew up reaching out and for the first time, not debating so much about, you know, what happened? What did he do? You know, was there a reason for this? You know, like all the things that we've seen before, the undermining of the victim, the discrediting the victim, it's less, it's substantially less. That gives me a little bit of hope. I feel, of course, people are still debating, rioting and protesting. I just personally have shut it down, but maybe it's not fair, but I just don't, I, I, I literally, I've, I've just said, I, <laughs> bye, yeah. done. I don't even care. I don't even care. Don't even waste my time because honestly, you're just, Frankly, you're pissing me off. So, like, I don't care. Let's talk about what actually matters. Let's let's eradicate the thing that that makes neither necessary, neither protesting or rioting. And if people don't understand that this is an expression of pain, I'm sorry. You've just been you've been living in a bubble for too long, and you just don't realize this is pain. This is what pain. This is what happens when you have accumulated trauma over small and large daily. This is what happens. And <laughs> And it also is what happens when young people grow up in areas where opportunities aren't a many, right? And you have the social determinants of health are lacking in major ways. You know, to, to, um, to think that, that, you know, we, you know, to lecture somebody about your virtue of peace and, and value of small businesses, 
It's like you haven't cared about their peace or their small businesses your entire life. So let's get real. Let's just talk real here. Because, you know, this is, this is, that's why there's the social determinants of health aren't in place is because nobody's cared, right? You don't care about our peace. You don't care about our economic vitality. Why should we care about yours? That's, that's what this is an expression of. And I understand it. I understand it. I, I honest to God, do not judge it. I do not. I understand it. I, I, a little disappointed when I saw it coming into the neighborhood, you know, I mean, I didn't think that was super helpful, but I understand it. I'm not judging, but either way, I, I've just done what I said. I, I don't even want to do, which is I don't even want to talk about that. Oh, I think, I think when it comes to systemic injustice, it's the hurdle that I've seen time and time again for 11 years, and it almost seems insurmountable, and I have smallest, the smallest sense of hope that I've had in a while. White people just can't get over the idea that police treat black people differently. They just fundamentally, as, a, as an institution, and I'm not talking about the bad apple. I'm not talking about the you know, people say, oh, it's probably 5%, it's 10%. No, because what you have is the 90% or the 85% or the 95% that watch it and say nothing. That is that that silence is complicit. It affirms that behavior. And at, first of all, I also don't think it's clear. I mean, I think what what is surprising in it in it it is surprising is that right here in North Lawndale, an officer pulls up outside of my house and will address me very differently than they'll address my neighbor. And both of us just stand outside talking to one another. They will address me differently. I've had officers say, "Oh." you should get out of the neighborhood before dark. And then I'd say, this is where I live. I'm actually stay outside my house. And they'd say, oh, well, I'll watch your house. I'd be like, okay, well, why don't you watch my neighbor's house? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and, and this is this is why Andy Cooper was so offensive. I mean, it was just so offensive because it, she, when she called 911, you, she knew there was so much, there was so much in that, there was so much in that short little period of time. She knew what it meant to say, I have an African-American male that's, I can't remember, hacking me or whatever she said. Mm-hmm. But she knows what, the, what the, the power dynamic, she knows the structure in play. And we all do. I mean, like, let's just be honest. We all do. We all do. Police interact with me visibly differently, whether I'm in Lake Zurich or North Lawndale, than they do my, my neighbors. Pastor Joe, pastor of our church, gets harassed like he's a thug and a criminal. He's a better person than me. For sure. For real. <laughs> so, you know, um, that's the biggest hurdle, I think. And, and maybe, maybe this video, maybe this video is a tipping point. Maybe this one is like, you know what? We do have a problem. I do think some people are, at, so there's a church, a friend of mine is a senior pastor out of a church in Lake Zurich where I grew up. And he wants to walk his church through an education on institutional and systemic racism and then follow up with a dialogue about that so people can be honest, but like within the framework of here's the lived experience, here's what institutional racism is, I'm not debating it, this is, this is educational, this is what we're sharing with you, here's some lived experiences to go along with it, and, and then we can do Q&A, but we're going to be framing it so that we're not sidetracked from what just false narratives. And we've got to stop that. We got to stop that. And we got to, and for those, and for, and I would say this too, for any white people, particularly anybody watching this, if, if you are, if you are disturbed by this stuff, do something, do something, speak up. Like, I feel like that's something where I'm seeing a little bit more of that. 
And you know, and it's like, oh, uh, what should I do? I'm been uncom- I don't care if you feel uncomfortable. If it was your kid, you'd figure it out. You'd figure it out. You know, like it. I I like what you said that not to cut you off, but like what you said about like no, it is it is your kid. You know, it's it's all of our kids. It's a community. Like, we're yeah. we're all in this together. And I think that kind of have that approach as a as a community. Like I'm gonna as a parent, I'm gonna any obstacle in the way the better for my child so you have to look at it as we're all god's yeah. children in this we're all trying to strive for better for all of it. it's it's inherent in every everyone regardless of skin color background race or creed and yeah. and i think that that's a great approach or maybe a way of looking at it it's that uncomfortableness that that father hurley spoke about this uh, last week during pentecost it's, like it's the courage that you need just a small step to get into that um that space to of what's here. Maybe just simple, something as simple as having a conversation. Somebody says an off-color remark uh, that, that is offensive. And many people are aware of this. And the problem with systemic racism is there's no one person or institution to point a finger at and say, you know, this, this is the cause of all of this. Because it, it's, it's scattered throughout all of our, our banking systems, our justice system, the way we look at people in business managed risk, the way grocery stores are built, everything. And, the, that, and as you were saying earlier, it has a drastic effect on how people now have to struggle with poverty. I have to struggle with hunger. I have to struggle with, can I afford rent? Because I haven't received the, the the benefits that other people have that are deemed a better or less of a risk than I am for whatever reason. And these are issues that kind of trace themselves all the way back to the Reconstruction era after the Civil War. Um, and one of the things too, th- this past Tuesday was on social media, you know, the big deal was everybody blacked out their their account. So it was nice to see the unity. And one, one of the positive things out of the protests and writing is there's that unity for a common cause. But once that dust settles once that and the rioting the looting as we've seen in our past will eventually cease and come to an end then it's time for that dialogue like you said the conversation of what do we do next how do we stem this going forward you know you've had a, a vision for this for quite some time you know we've discussed this in the past and another aspect too that you mentioned is the resorted market what does that look like explain to us what that is you broke up on the last part you said explain to us what that is what was that was oh, it the restorative the... approach yeah the restor- okay yeah so because there's there's um, personally and professionally, things that we can do, listening and empathy and, and really listen and then also stand up and speak up. But yes, so I, I appreciate you asking that question because, um, you know, I really, I, I, don't, I do believe that we have a better system, essentially, that we've created something. I don't like using the word necessarily system, but at the end of the day, if you scale it up at large, it will become sort of, of a system, if you will. But there are some very key ingredients to the way we do things that I think would really radically transform our criminal justice system. So you have, you know, um, 2.5 million, I think it's, I think it's 6 million or 8 million. I can't remember the number now. I had six or eight total across the nation that are involved in the criminal justice system, meaning they're on probation, parole, or in jail. 2.5 million roughly are incarcerated. And then the rest are of course on probation or parole. Half of that group is 24 and under. So you have the bottleneck it being young people. I think people don't realize this. Like we're sending our kids to jail. We're sending our kids, saddling our kids with felony convictions for the rest of their life that are an economic life sentence. And so you have this system that is fundamentally based on policing, prosecuting, and incarcerating heavily in black and brown communities. And, and we have something completely different. We have something where you have local people, people from the neighborhood, you know, social services within the community, um, but this community-based, this presence, this trust building, this we're with you and for you, I think matters a lot. And 
it's also developmentally um, appropriate. It's, it's backed by science. I mean, like we said earlier, neurobiology, developmental psychology, sociology, um, all of these scientific fields recognize that we should be doing better for these young people. These aren't appropriate interventions for somebody who are still developing and growing. And that we're really actually, and at the end of the day, you can even look at it selfishly, we're hurting ourselves, both because it costs billions of dollars. We're spending billions of dollars on criminal justice, policing, prosecuting, incarceration, a piece of money that But also because it's, it's socially not good. We're hurting people. We're taking young people that could have gone and done, you know, been a, a scientist or whatever, and now they're saddled with a felony conviction and they're in jail for the rest of or the, the revolving door of the criminal justice system is very real. So we believe we can fundamentally break that with the model that we've created that we've been doing for 11 years. This holistic social services, legal services wrapped together to, in one package, if you will, baked in the neighborhood with cultural competence, community competence, people who actually understand the lived experiences of the people who are most affected by the criminal justice system that are closest to the pain, closest to the problem and understand it from lit life, lived experience, being deeply embedded in the process and solution. And so a, a model that's, that's age appropriate, developmentally appropriate, meeting social needs as much as we're looking at the, the legal, I think is critical. And then the restorative piece is of course, we started the Restorative Justice Community Court in North Lawndale, I think three years ago now. Um, and the idea there is that, you know, we have a look at crime where if, if a crime happens, a law is broken, appropriate sentences are prescribed. As opposed to a relationship is broken where there's pain and there's healing that needs to happen. And maybe justice should focus on healing more so and restoration more so than punishment. And, and I think, especially for young people, especially for young people where punishment doesn't act as a deterrent like it does for maybe somebody who's uh, more developed. Um, and so you wanna have um, an opportunity, and we've had victim offender circles, or literally, you know, broken to my home, you robbed me of this or that, we sat together and, and there's an apology made there's what happened, what's going on in that young person's life. The victim and in the, uh, the defendant yeah. perpetrator, they're sitting together. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Now, there's sort of Justice Community Court in North Lawndale, just to be clear, right now, it, it, I think it started in its first like on case and a couple, you know, lower level violent crimes, but it started out with mostly drug crimes and, and it wasn't really doing a lot of victim offender circles. But we've been doing that in, in a legal center for, you know, for a long time. Um, and so we are moving the restorative justice court along, of course, everywhere, everything like this, particularly when you're involving elected officials, which is not a slant against them, it's just is what it is. You gotta, you gotta um, start somewhere and then build. You gotta, you know, people gotta be comfortable with it and then you build. So I think it's heading in the right direction. Um, but, but the idea of restorative justice versus punitive justice as a whole would be restoration. And the truth is, is our current criminal justice system, what most people don't realize, is not just doing nothing for victims, quite literally, quite literally. You call 911 because you got robbed, you're gonna have police come out, you're gonna fill out a police report, and that might be the last thing you've ever heard of. It. The attorney is gonna probably give you a call once or twice, if they do, to, to approve of a plea deal. You're not gonna have a, most time you're not gonna have a victim impact statement. I mean, it's really only when you get to murder that that happens. Mm -hmm. which is like, you know, 90, not 1% of the crime. I mean, it's like 99% is not that. And so it, it, they, they, there's no restoration. It's not like you get your property back. Nobody's coming back. For you. But in a circle, that might actually happen. Like, what do you need comes out of that? What does the young person need? What do you need to become whole? And then people start working together. So like I sat in a circle with a young man who, who jumped a pizza delivery guy. 
And, um, you know, he started cleaning up the shop and going out on deliveries with, them. you know, I mean, they formed like kind of a mentor-mentee relationship or just a supportive relationship. Um, some very, very neat, some very, very cool things can happen in that space when you start to realize where the harm splintered off and who needs to be made whole. Oh, that's fantastic. So one of the things that people have been saying with the pandemic and now with, um, with George Floyd is it's kind of what the new normal looks like. And I want to get what your opinion is of what that looks like going forward um, for the LCLC, what it looks like for the criminal justice system here in Chicago, and where and how people can get involved more and to, yeah. to form these relationships like you're talking about, to kind of be that holistic approach that you've talked about, to be a part of it. Yeah. So um, I was I was really a, a, against the whole new norm for so long for the first month or two of, of shelter in place because I was like oh like we need to still be interacting with people face to face you know what I mean we still need hugs we're people we're human right and um, and and I've since now started to see okay there is some things I think we've learned that genuinely we can do by video that actually may make it more efficient you're you're reducing travel time or commute time like. We wouldn't have been able to do this, right? I mean, so you and I are talking. I haven't seen you since pre-COVID, so hello, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but you know, I think there's, I think there is a balance. What I don't want to see is like our entire criminal court system going jury trials by Zoom. You know what I mean? Like, you need to, you need to be able to see to judge credibility and of a witness. You, you need to be able to see body language and the environment and be affected by the experience of it. I think just the humanity. Those, connect human to human yeah, it's, it's easy exactly to yeah and, and it was sentencing all of those things like it, it, we're already in a system that dehumanizes mm -hmm. i don't think being at a video distance is going to help so i was pretty like oh i don't want i don't want a new normal let's just talk about how we can get back when there's a vaccine but the reality is is there is going to be a new normal right i mean some of it's good some of it's good like i've learned a lot about germs and how they're transferred like I mean, like, I will wash my hands for the rest of my life more often than before. I will probably cough into my elbow. I was never good at both of those things, right? Um, I'm not, you know, I don't think I'm going to be paranoid, but I do get now how germs are transferred. Um, and um, I think some of those things are, are good. You know, I, I, I do think that there's going to that we're going to have more opportunity. Of course, the economy is going to change. You know, I mean, I think that there's just been a lot of things that we used to do out that we now do in, that we do at home. And I, th I wouldn't be surprised if that changes some of these industries. I, I mean, I'm not an, an economist, but uh, we're both in our MBA. So we are starting to think about this. And, and I do think that it's going to have a long lasting impact. Um, as far as social justice, um, it's still too early to tell. I, I have some degree of optimism and I do, and I don't want to dis I don't want to damper that because I want to, I want to stoke it. I want to breathe oxygen into it. I am hopeful that, that, largely affluent white communities who have been, um, I would say, insulated or protected from these issues are actually now engaging. They want to understand what systemic racism is. They want to understand, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe I have had some preferential treatment growing up. Maybe the color of my skin has mattered. Um, and, and in no I mean, there's a lot of different systems, educational, I mean, everything really, but I feel like the criminal justice system is the one that screams the loudest that we really have a problem. And I think it's because so much of who you are is, it, it does depend, there's so much discretion, there's so much discretion from who calls 911, which we've seen all kinds of crazy things like that, 
Um, but calling 911 is the, is the start. It's a discretionary decision by people. Mm-hmm. And perception matters a lot. And we know that from all kinds of studies and implicit bias. But then how police respond. I mean, there's so much discretion. You could literally let somebody go who's committing the crime. And we see that happen to white kids. Take them home, you know, or, or take them to the school and have the school do something. You don't, have to, you don't have to arrest them and charge them with the misdemeanor. You don't have to arrest them and charge them with the felony. But what's more likely to happen if you're a young black boy from North Lawndale or a young white boy from Lake Zurich? What's more likely to happen is I'm going to get my parents or my school teacher or the school, and we're going to leave it there. The community here, here. Punish, you, punish you or kind of bring you back out yeah, of there. Yeah. Community's there, and, well, and they trust the community. Yes. Right. There's a trust for the community to sort of right itself, if you will. Here it's no, we got to drop the hammer. Let's bring the felony charge. Let's, you know, let's permanently track this person for the rest of their life by way of felony records and put them in jail. And it's, it's really, it's really, I mean, <laughs> we're polarized because our lived experiences are polarized. The way that we live in this world is, is, is nowhere near the same. So I think people are starting to realize that's true. Or, well, no, I don't know. They're, they're interested in learning to see if it's true. Or I think, they just dismissed it. You know, Mike Brown did something. Trayvon Martin did something. So they believe the self-defense model. This one was like, well, I'm not sure what he did. He looks right. like he was literally begging for his life, and, and you just and you just killed him. You know, so I don't know. I hope. I hope because you know this should have been done a long time ago. So I hope that this is something that that. Um, that we really do step up on. And, and, and this isn't, you know, I know that this offends white people, but I mean, this isn't, racism is largely a white person's problem. Yes, there is racism between, you know, it is complicated. I'm not saying that there's, you know, we, we have black and brown and Asian and, and I mean, there's all kinds of racial issues we have, but we have to own the fact that the historic and current disparate treatment of our African-American brothers and sisters in particular is something that we as white people really need to take some real serious responsibility for and speak up and out against it and do everything we can to change it. Absolutely. Well, this is fantastic. I look forward to being able to talk with you in person again. Um, yes, me too. Especially now they know about your rules about learning about germs. That's going to be Those fantastic. Uh, so people want to get more involved and learn more. Uh, your website is lclc.net. We'll also yep. that with, along with the podcast. We look forward to hosting again another Montreal tournament. That was very awesome. and exciting to watch uh, young people come into their own. And with that, I thank you very much, Cliff. And again, I look forward to meeting with you in person. Yeah, good to see you, Kevin. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. We next speak with parish member David Ryan to discuss a way he was able to take action and rally the OSP's men's group to help fill a need for the students of North Landale during the pandemic. Dave Ryan, welcome to the show. What's up, Kevhead? Good to see you. <laughs> Dave, you are a man among men. You're part of the, you're an OSP member. You were part of the OSP men's group. You've been keeping it alive all these years. And just recently, you helped donate and collect over, I believe, $5,000 worth of laptop equipment for children in North Lawndale. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, happy to. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, listen, I think we all uh, in our quarantine time have too much time to think, and uh, uh, that was the case with me. And we were doing our job quarantining in place, but I think a lot of people were asking themselves, what else can we be doing, right? Is there something else? And uh, this was late March, early April. 
So we're a couple weeks into the quarantine and I saw a, a new spot where now the CPS kids were uh, going home. They weren't going to be coming into uh, school anymore. I don't know exact dates, but um, the piece was really about uh, a, a Hispanic father who was doing Zoom meetings. Uh, they only had one device in the house. And now the, the children, two children are trying to get on and get their learning um, and continue their their schooling and uh, it just was very difficult you're juggling one device um, uh, uh, multiple family members trying to do the, either do their job go to school and I thought my gosh I look to my right I'm in my office uh, basement and I had I've got two laptops that I don't use anymore. They're a little bit older, but they were usable. They had a webcam. Mm -hmm. uh, they connect to the internet just fine. And I thought, there's got to be some devices uh, uh, laying around people's houses. And so the uh, I got word out to the Old St. Pat's men's group. We've got a distribution list of about uh, four or 500 guys. And we're really on for kind of providing extra arms and legs into a lot of the outreach programs that we provide through Old St. Pat's. And I said, hey, here's my idea. What do you got? To be honest with you, we didn't find many laptops. We found about 15 or so used laptops. They were usable. Uh, some of them were really old. And we, they just uh, would more be more burdensome. But in the process, uh, uh, people from the, the men's group said, hey, I don't have a laptop, but uh, will you take a donation? And suddenly, uh, I'm getting checks. So they're sending checks to made out to Old St. Pat's to my house. I'm kind of adding them up and we raised over $7,000 and uh, yeah, really neat. And so um, we bought Chromebooks. They're, they're about 250 bucks a piece. And that's, they're a stripped down laptop for those who don't know the Chromebook. Basically it's a webcam and internet connection. And then you can get on to, you know, Google docs or whatever it might be. And so my nephew works at CDW and uh, he helped me secure. Uh, I think we, we scored about, I don't know, I want to say 35 Chromebooks in addition to the 15 used um, laptops. I'm still getting checks. I'm amazed. People are going, can I still donate? So we might be able to kind of up that mark a little bit. But uh, we distributed them through uh, our North Lawndale outreach. So Vince and company found uh, individuals and entities that had, had a need. Um, and then we also uh, gave, uh, I think, five or six to care, the CARA program. So now the CARA students, unfortunately, couldn't come in and do their on-site training. So they were doing remote learning. And so they needed uh, those devices. So we've touched a number of different entities. And it's been uh, extremely fulfilling. And, and uh, at the end of the day, uh, hey, we're, we're, we're doing something that just beyond just sitting at home in quarantine. No, you're putting all this idle time to good use. Also how this podcast came to be. Uh, also, I heard that some of the uh, laptops and devices you donated also went to the families of the church supports and the Immigration Refugee uh, Committee. So it's, it's gone beyond just North Lawndale, like you said, part of the care program. So many children have benefited yeah. uh, greatly from this, this program. What, what sort of needs or other issues did you see while, um, when these donations were being made? At, at, what kind of impact did you see it make? Well, I, I am hopeful, uh, Kevin, that they're being used. Uh, and I, I was pretty clear with Vince. I said, let's make sure we direct them. We've got a limited number. Let's direct them to families who are actually going to put them to use. Uh, and uh, so I think we've been pretty good about that. Yes, the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the other families that you mentioned are, are, are part of it. You know, 
even if you have a device, one of the other uh, speed bumps in this process is just having access to the internet. They may not have uh, internet connectivity, right? And so uh, that's why Wi-Fi hotspots are, are so important uh, in these uh, different uh, um, uh, geographies and, and neighborhoods. Uh, some people ask, do you need printers? I don't know. I, I don't think we need printers right now. But listen, it, it was a, a, a pebble in a pond in terms of the need. There, somebody said there was uh, 100,000 devices CPS was short of in uh, providing uh, the distance learning. And what, we put 50 out there, right? So uh, there's a huge need. And who knows when the kids are, are going back? Are they going to go back in the fall or not? Yeah, right. Um, so... Uh, we were just happy to, to kind of make a dent in it. And, um, you know, people are asking, hey, is this something the men's group wants to get behind in a bigger way, uh, helping kind of bridge that technology gap? That's fantastic. And our previous guest, Cliff Nelson, was talking about how locally they were able to provide hot, internet hotspots for children to address that, that problem. So it's great to see both ends of the communities working together to yeah. address that, that need. So that's fantastic. Yeah, well, thank you. People want to thank you, David. So if people want to get more involved or be able to contribute, or they do have a workable, less burdensome laptop laying around, can they just get in contact with you? Yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, I'm happy to be kind of the fulfillment operation right now while we're still in quarantine. They can email me at dryan, D-R-Y-A-N, at graymattersgroup.com. Gray, G-R-A-Y, matters, plural, group.com. And uh, I'll give them some direction, and we'll go from there, okay? Fantastic. And I'll include that in our slides with our podcast. So thank you very much, awesome. Dave. Ryan, also the men's group meets every Friday at 730 in the morning. Joe is having Joe virtually. It's been a very yeah. clean um, engagement with the with the fellow men of Old St. Pat's. Yeah. So it's been great. It's been great to see you there during this. Yeah, time. thanks. Thanks. Yeah, hour long, 730 to 830, about 20 guys get on the call and uh, we just kind of kick the tires on whatever is on our mind. So good stuff. Good, good community. Stuff. All right. Well, you take care, David. Thank you very All much. All right. Kevin, take care. As we wrap up our first episode, it is important to remember the radical change we need will not be instant or as large as we desire. Instead, it is a process of reversing the tide of injustice and inequities that has plagued so many for so long. Like former Attorney General and Senator from New York Robert F. Kennedy once said, each time a man stands up for an ideal, or acts to improve the lots of others, or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope, and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring, those ripples build a current that can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. Right now, all we can do is challenge ourselves, get out of our comfort zone, and find the courage to take one step in reversing the tide. Over 100 years ago, Chicago was able to reverse the flow of the river, and we can do it again together. Thank you for listening to Chicago's Radical Kinship Podcast, broadcasting from Old St. Pat's Church in Chicago's West Loop. This is your host, Kevin Kelly, and I would like to thank all of my guests for joining me on this episode. This podcast was made possible by the support of the OSP Parish staff, and particularly Vince Guider and Kayla Jackson. 